Welcome to The Time of Our Life, a special series from Valley Public Radio. I'm David Ause. In this series, award-winning journalist and author Mark Arax offers a special perspective on our times viewed through the lens of writer William Soroyan. This week, we're joined by Fresno poet and educator Marisol Baca. Welcome, Marisol. Hi, how are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you here, and welcome to you, Mark. Well, thanks. We're excited. We have the Fresno's Poet Laureate with us. Let me just talk a bit about Marisol. She's uh, the author of Tremor. Uh, it's a full-length collection of poems that came out in 2018. She received her Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing from Cornell, so she did some time back east. And she's now a professor, an English professor at Fresno City College. And it's just great to have her here. Yes, and thank you, Mark, I mean, for inviting me, both of you. Really happy to be on the show. So you're not a native of the Valley, but you've been here for a long time. You grew up in Albuquerque. I'm wondering about that journey from one place in the West to another place in the West, two places that are quite different. Tell us about the trip, the trip to the Valley, the first time you saw it. Right. I'm a transplant. We drove here uh, from Albuquerque. I was little, about six years old, and we um, came in this big van with all six of us and drove the normal route, which we take now every year to go back to Albuquerque. And I remember the first things uh, showing up to the valley at night or <clears throat> during the dusk, uh, you know, the end of the day, and then getting really dark. And I remember asking, obviously, like most kids ask, where are, are we there? Are, the, are we there yet? <laughs> and <laughs> I remember my dad said, yes, we're just driving up to a street that's a big street in Fresno called Blackstone. And I remember thinking, that is the strangest name I've ever heard. <laughs> Blackstone. And I was enthralled with this street. And we drive down and I just see all of the, the billboards and then the pickup trucks and then billboards and the lights of, of, of Blackstone. And we stayed at, at an old hotel that was on Blackstone. And I think it's still there. It's under a different name now. Uh, it had this like flagstone uh, <laughs> front and we piled out of the car and stayed there for a few weeks before finding finding a house near Fresno State, where my dad taught for 23 years. I also remember just looking out the window and never really have seen all of the grapevines. And now it's just, it's so embedded in what it is to be a Fresnan and what it is to be a person of the valley is just driving through those grapevines, almost cliche to that point. But it was the first time I had ever seen that driving and driving and driving uh, through all of that. So, um, but yeah, yeah, all my family. (laughs) I can't imagine a more jarring image of arriving here on Blackstone, <laughs> which we call the the Boulevard of Broken Dreams, <laughs> right. and, and, you know, and um, so, but you got to see the rural next to the, the 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 kind of beauty of the rural, although industrial industrialized, of course, next right, to right. Uh, a strip uh, of fast food and uh, honky tonks and um, and auto dealerships and all that. So liquor stores, yeah. Yeah. And I was just talking to my students, my poetry students about Fresno writing and Fresno poetry just this past week. And I was talking about how Fresno writers really, um, it's 
a lot of times about setting and about place and landscape. And you have these grand ideas of landscape. But I say, well, Fresno writers really know about landscape because they're talking about the rural and right next to the urban and how both of those things kind of just smash into each other. And that was my first, uh, really the first time I ever saw. And I thought, California, we're going to be next to the beach. Um, <laughs> but um, but I got this other experience. Yeah. So you're reading two stories. They're kind of two very different stories. So tell us about both of them and, and, and what you find fascinating about them. They're, they're, it's, it's Soroyan doing two different things. I mean, this guy was a writer who could write in any number of ways. So... So tell us about the stories you're going to read today. Sure. The first um, piece is The Hummingbird That Lived Through Winter. And the second is The Daring Young Man on the Flying Trapeze. And after looking at a number of different pieces and wanting to kind of read what I thought were these shorter fables, um, which the obviously the hummingbird is is very fable-like, reading these shorter pieces, I was trying to find, you know, the perfect balance. But I just kept going back to the daring young man on the flying trapeze. And it's so completely different from the hummingbird piece. But I'll talk a little bit about the hummingbird first, and then I'll talk a little bit about the about the daring young man. The hummingbird piece, I kind of just fell in love with this thing that I see in a lot of pieces that I'm in awe of, and that is the way that Soroyan talks about the minuscule, the tiny little egg of the hummingbird, the tiny little turtle eggs, the minuscule, the tiny environment, and how that can kind of explode into this into this whole other large domain. And that's one of the things that I fell in love with with the hummingbird. But I also think that the hummingbird piece is just feels a little bit like a poem and definitely a narrative poem. And just you just get this beautiful little capsule um, story of this with this amazing character. So I love the the old Dikran and um, using his senses. Right. Um, he knows his domain, his kingdom. I don't know if I'd call it his kingdom, but I'd say his domain for sure, his garden. And and he knows it so well. And this is what I really loved about the hummingbird. He knows it so well that he senses an issue or a problem that shows up right in this story. He senses right. it without the ability to see. And the character that's watching that really I think appreciates how if you know something really well, if you know a place where you are, that you can talk about all of these other things and use that. So I really fell in love with that part of the of, of the story. Let's listen now as Fresno Poet Laureate Marisol Baca reads William Soroyan's The Hummingbird That Lived Through Winter. The Hummingbird That Lived Through Winter. Sometimes... Even instinct is overpowered by individuality. In creatures other than men, I mean. In men, instinct is supposed to be controlled. But whether or not it ever actually is, I leave to others. At any rate, the fundamental instinct of most or all creatures is to live. Each form of life has an instinctive technique 
of defense against other forms of life, as well as against the elements. What happens to hummingbirds is something I have never found out from actual observation or from reading. They die, that's true, and they're born somehow or other, although I have never seen a hummingbird's egg or a young hummingbird. The mature hummingbird itself is so small that the egg must be magnificent, probably one of the most smiling little things in the world. Now, if hummingbirds come into the world through some other means than eggs, I ask the reader to forgive me. The only thing I know about agas, uh, agasig, 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 well, the great American naturalist, is that he once studied turtle eggs, and in order to get the information he was seeking, had to find fresh ones. This caused an exciting adventure in Boston to a young fellow who wrote about it six or seven years before I read it, when I was 14. I was 14 in 1922, which goes to show you how unimportant the years are when you're dealing with eggs of any kind. I envy the people who study birds, and someday I hope to find out everything that's known about hummingbirds. I've gathered from rumor that the hummingbird travels incredible distances on incredibly little energy. What carries him, then? Spirit? But the best things I know about hummingbirds are the things I've noticed about them myself. That they are on hand when the sun is out in earnest, when the blossoms are with us, and the smell of them everywhere. You can hardly go through the best kind of day without seeing a hummingbird, suspended like a little miracle in a shaft of light over a big flower or a cluster of little ones. Or turning like gay insanity and shooting straight as an arrow toward practically nothing, for no reason, or for the reason that it's alive. Now, how can creatures such as that, so delicately magnificent and mad, possibly find time for the routine business of begetting young, or for the exercise of instinct in self-defense? Well, however it may be, let a good day come by the grace of God, and with it will come the hummingbirds. As I started to say, however, it appears that sometimes even instinct fails to operate in a species, or species, or whatever it is. Anyhow, when all of a kind of living thing turn and go somewhere, in order to stay alive, in order to escape cold or whatever it might be, sometimes, it appears, one of them does not go. Why he does not go, I cannot say. He may be eccentric, or there may be exalted reasons, specific instead of abstract, passion for another of its kind, perhaps dead, or for a place or it may be stupidity or stubbornness. Who can ever know? 
There was a hummingbird once, which in the winter time did not leave our neighborhood in Fresno, California. I'll tell you about it. Across the street lived old Dikran, who was almost blind. He was past eighty, and his wife was only a few years younger. They had a little house that was as neat inside as it was ordinary outside, except for old Dikran's garden, which was the best thing of its kind in the world. Plants, bushes, trees, all strong in sweet black moist earth, whose guardian was old Dikran. All things from the sky loved this spot in our poor neighborhood, and old Dikran loved them. One freezing Sunday, in the dead of winter, as I came home from Sunday school, I saw old Dikran standing in the middle of the street, trying to distinguish what it was in his hand. Instead of going into our house to the fire, as I had wanted to do, I stood on the steps of the front porch and watched the old man. He would turn around and look upward at his trees and then back to the palm of his hand. He stood in the street at least two minutes, and then at last he came to me. He held his hand out, and in Armenian he said, What is this in my hand? I looked. It's a hummingbird, I said, half in English and half in Armenian. Hummingbird, I said in English, because I didn't know its name in Armenian. What is that? Old Dikran asked. The little bird, I said, you know, the one that comes in the summer and stands in the air and then shoots away. The one with the wings that beat so fast you can't see them. It's in your hand. It's dying. Come with me, the old man said. I can't see in the old ladies at church. I can feel its heart beating. Is it in a bad way? Look again, once. I looked again. It was a sad thing to behold, this wonderful little creature of summertime in the big, rough hand of the old peasant. Here it was, in the cold of winter, absolutely helpless and pathetic, not suspended in a shaft of summer light, not the most alive thing in the world, but the most helpless and heartbreaking. It's dying, I said. The old man lifted his hand to his mouth and blew warm breath on the little thing in his hand, which he could not even see. Stay now, he said in Armenian. It is not long till summer. Stay, swift and lovely. We went into the kitchen of his little house, and while he blew warm breath on the bird, he told me what to do. Put a spoonful of honey over the gas fire and pour it into my hand. But be sure it is not too hot. This was done. After a moment, the hummingbird began to show signs of fresh life. 
the warmth of the room, the vapor of the warm honey, and, well, the will and love of the old man. Soon the old man could feel the change in his hand, and after a moment or two the hummingbird began to take little dabs of the honey. It will live, the old man announced. Stay and watch. The transformation was incredible. The old man kept his hand generously open, and I expected the helpless bird to shoot upward out of his hand, suspend itself in space, and scare the life out of me, which is exactly what happened. The new life of the little bird was magnificent. It spun about in the little kitchen, going to the window, coming back to the heat, suspending, circling as if it were summertime, and it had never felt better in its whole life. The old man sat on the plain chair, blind but attentive. He listened carefully and tried to see, but of course he couldn't. He kept asking about the bird, how it seemed to be, whether it showed signs of weakening again, what its spirit was, and whether or not it appeared to be restless. And I kept describing the bird to him. When the bird was restless and wanted to go, the old man said, Open the window and let it go. Will it live, I asked. It is alive now and wants to go, he said. Open the window. I opened the window. The hummingbird stirred about here and there, feeling the cold from the outside, suspended itself in the area of the open window, stirring this way and that, and then it was gone. Close the window, the old man said. We talked a minute or two, and then I went home. The old man claimed the hummingbird lived through that winter, but I never knew for sure. I saw hummingbirds again when summer came, but I couldn't tell one from the other. One day, in the summer, I asked the old man, Did it live? The little bird, he said. Yes, I said. That we gave the honey to? You remember. The little bird that was dying in the winter. Did it live? Look about you, the old man said. Do you see the bird? I see hummingbirds, I said. Each of them is our bird, the old man said. Each of them. Each of them, he said swiftly and gently. That was Fresno poet and educator Marisol Baca reading William Soroyan's The Hummingbird That Lived Through Winter. Marisol, you mentioned that this story has the elements of fable, and that's part of its allure and a draw for you. Can you talk a little bit about those elements? Right. So the fable is usually a story that has, as it's one of its main characters, a uh, an animal. And this story doesn't have... Uh, the animal isn't speaking or talking, but it feels like a fable because the animal is also being used, right, to say something larger. But also a lot of times there's this moral, the moral at the end of the story, and that's usually typically what we see with a fable. 
What do you take away as a moral from this story? I think it says it at the end. That hummingbird is all hummingbirds. And that act of generosity and kindness, the warmth and the feeding is the whole garden, is basically what Dikran is trying to do, is help to make this place more alive. And I, I, I think of it as generosity and the multitudes, right? So, and also, I guess maybe it's about how there's a connection between the one hummingbird and the many hummingbirds that are life and are living and are alive and are are doing and being, but also the dichotomy, the right, the dark dichotomy, that death, that that is also reminiscent of the many deaths that there are. And I think we see that with a lot of that stuff that's happening in that story with a lot of the back and forth, the, the duel, right? So the old man in the garden and his wife who's away, right? The young boy who's looking and, and the old man who's talking, right? And so observation, all of that stuff. So you see that duality. And I think that's definitely a part of that. I don't know if that would be a moral, but it's definitely a theme. <laughs> and just to remember that the one stands in for the many. Uh, that's a gorgeous answer. Because the boy has sight, the old man doesn't. But the old man has this kind of wisdom and, um, right. and, and it really, what I love about these two stories is they could be no more different, and yet they're both from the same writer. The Hummingbird piece, it's a small story, but the daring young man on the flying trapeze is about so much more, right? And daring young man on the flying trapeze is a dark piece, but an experimental piece. And it's really the piece that Saroyan is just uh, launched into his career, 1934, and it's uh, from Story Magazine. And and you can see that this experiment, this like kind of being really in love with language and power and the power of language. Um, and he talks about this in a few interviews of just feeling like writing is this powerful thing that can change people. And that this experimental kind of strange story unfolds. I read it as a, you know, as a young person, and I probably read it again, I think, um, later when I was in graduate school or undergraduate school. And I remember reading it. And every time there are a few different things that I also just uh, images that I remember very distinctly. And the penny is the image that I remember really distinctly. Again, this moment where um, Saroyan takes this tiny thing, this tiny little thing, this penny, and is able to wrap around that image all of the devastation and the and the problems that were happening at the time with the depression and and hunger and starvation that he uses. He kind of just goes into this little micro world, and I I just I think maybe that's a a strange way of looking at it, but maybe because I'm a poet, I'm looking at those tiny little things <laughs> amidst the larger arc. Yeah, I kind of fell in love with that. And I can see why uh, it was so experimental, but so, I think so powerful. And that little image is so powerful, but it's really just made really nicely. I have that actual magazine in front of me, February 1934, <laughs> uh, uh, Story Magazine number 19. He's in there with maybe 
a dozen other writers, and one of them is William Faulkner. I mean, this was really his announcement to the world that I'm here, I'm a voice, and you must listen to me. Let's listen now as Fresno Poet Laureate Marisol Baca reads William Soroyan's The Daring Young Man on the Flying Trapeze. The Daring Young Man on the Flying Trapeze. Chapter 1. Sleep. Horizontally wakeful amid universal widths, practicing laughter and myrrh, satire, the end of all, Rome, and yes, of Babylon, clenched teeth, remembrance, much warmth, volcanic, the streets of Paris, the plains of Jericho, much gliding as of reptile in abstraction, a gallery of watercolors, the sea and the fish with eyes, symphony, a table in the corner of the Eiffel Tower, jazz at the opera house, alarm clock, and the tap dancing of doom. Conversation with a tree, the river Nile, the roar of Dostoevsky, and the dark sun. This earth, the face of one who lived, the form without the weight, weeping upon snow, white music, the magnified flower twice the size of the universe, black clouds, the caged panther staring, deathless space. Mr. Elliot with rolled sleeves baking bread, Flaubert and Guy de Maupassant, a wordless rhyme of early meaning, Finlandia, mathematics highly polished and slick as a green onion to the teeth, Jerusalem, the path to paradox, the deep song of man, the sly whisper of someone unseen but vaguely known, hurricane in the cornfield, a game of chess, hush the queen, the king, Karl Franz, black titanic, Mr. Chaplin weeping, Stalin, Hitler, a multitude of Jews, tomorrow is Monday, no dancing in the streets. Oh, swift moment of life, it is ended. Again, the earth is now. Chapter 2. Wakefulness He, the living, dressed and shaved, grinning at himself in the mirror. Very unhandsome, he said, where is my tie? He had but one. Coffee and a gray sky, Pacific Ocean fog, the drone of a passing streetcar, people going to the city, time again, the day, prose and poetry. He moved swiftly down the stairs to the street and began to walk, thinking suddenly, it is only in sleep that we may know we live. There, only, in that living death, do we meet ourselves and the far earth, God and the saints, the names of our fathers, the substance of remote moments. It is there that the centuries merge in the moment, that the vast becomes the tiny, tangible atom of eternity. 
He walked into the day as alertly as might be, making a definite noise with his heels, perceiving with his eyes the superficial truth of streets and structures, the trivial truth of reality. Helplessly, his mind sang. He flies through the air with the greatest of ease, the daring young man on the flying trapeze then laughed with all the might of his being. It was really a splendid morning, gray, cold, and cheerless, a morning for inward vigor. Ah, Edgar Guest, he said, how I long for your music. In the gutter, he saw a coin, which proved to be a penny dated 1923, and placing it in the palm of his hand, he examined it closely, remembering that year and thinking of Lincoln, whose profile was stamped upon the coin. There was almost nothing a man could do with a penny. I will purchase a motor car, he thought. I will dress myself in the fashion of a fop, visit the hotel strumpets, drink and dine, and then return to the quiet, or I will drop the coin into a slot and weigh myself. It was good to be poor and the communists, but it was dreadful to be hungry. What appetites they had, how fond they were of food, empty stomachs. He remembered how greatly he needed food. Every meal was bread and coffee and cigarettes, and now he had no more bread. Coffee without bread could never honestly serve as supper, and there were no weeds in the park that could be cooked as spinach is cooked. If the truth were known, he was half starved, and there was still no end of books he ought to read before he died. He remembered the young Italian in a Brooklyn hospital, a small sick clerk named Malika, who had said desperately, I would like to see California once before I die. And he thought earnestly, I ought at least to read Hamlet once again, or perhaps Huckleberry Finn. It was then that he became thoroughly awake at the thought of dying. Now wakefulness was a state in the nature of a sustained shock. A young man could perish rather unostentatiously, he thought, and already he was very nearly starved. Water and prose were fine. They filled much in organic space, but they were inadequate. If there were only some work he might do for money, some trivial labor in the name of commerce, if they would only allow him to sit at a desk all day and add trade figures, subtract and multiply and divide, then perhaps he would not die. He would buy food, all sorts of it, untasted delicacies from Norway, Italy, and France, all manner of beef, lamb, fish, cheese, grapes, figs, pears, apples, melons, which he would worship when he had satisfied his hunger. 
he would place a bunch of red grapes on a dish beside two black figs, a large yellow pear, and a green apple. He would hold a cut melon to his nostrils for hours. He would buy great brown loaves of French bread, vegetables of all sorts, meat, life. From a hill, he saw the city standing majestically in the east, great towers dense with his kind, and there he was suddenly outside of it all, almost definitely certain that he should never gain admittance, almost positive that somehow he had ventured upon the wrong earth or perhaps into the wrong age. And now a young man of twenty-two was to be permanently ejected from it. This thought was not saddening. He said to himself, sometime soon I must write an application for permission to live. He accepted the thought of dying without pity for himself or for man, believing that he would at least sleep another night. His rent for another day was paid. There was yet another tomorrow. And after that, he might go where other homeless men went. He might even visit the Salvation Army, sing to God and Jesus, unlover of my soul, be saved, eat and sleep. But he knew that he would not. His life was a private life. He did not wish to destroy this fact. Any other alternative would be better. Through the air on the flying trapeze, his mind hummed. Amusing it was, astoundingly funny. A trapeze to God or to nothing, a flying trapeze to some sort of eternity. He prayed objectively for strength to make the flight with grace. I have one cent, he said. It is an American coin. In the evening I shall polish it until it glows like the sun and I shall study the words. He was now walking in the city itself, among living men. There were one or two places to go. He saw his reflection in plate-glass windows of stores and was disappointed with his appearance. He seemed not at all as strong as he felt. He seemed, in fact, a trifle infirm in every part of his body, in his neck, his shoulders, arms, trunk, and knees. This will never do, he said. And with an effort, he assembled all his disjointed parts and became tensely, artificially erect and solid. He passed numerous restaurants with magnificent discipline, refusing even to glance into them, and at last reached a building which he entered. He rose in an elevator to the seventh floor, moved down a hall, and opening a door, walked into the office of an employment agency. Already there were two dozen young men in the place. He found a corner where he stood waiting his turn to be interviewed. At length, he was granted this great privilege and was questioned by a thin, scatterbrained miss of fifty. Now tell me, she said, what can you do? He was embarrassed. I can write, he said, 
pathetically. You mean your penmanship is good? Is that it? said the elderly maiden. Well, yes, he replied. But I mean, I can write. Write what? said the miss, almost with anger. Prose, he said simply. There was a pause. At last the lady said, Can you use a typewriter? Of course, said the young man. All right, went on the miss. We have your address. We will get in touch with you. There is nothing this morning, nothing at all. It was much the same at the other agency, except that he was questioned by a conceited young man who closely resembled a pig. From the agencies he went to the large department stores. There was a good deal of pomposity, some humiliation on his part, and finally the report that work was not available. He did not feel displeased, and strangely did not even feel that he was personally involved in all the foolishness. He was a living young man who was in need of money with which to go on being one, and there was no way of getting it except by working for it, and there was no work. It was purely an abstract problem which he wished for the last time to attempt to solve. Now he was pleased that the matter was closed. He began to perceive the definiteness of the course of his life. Except for moments, it had been largely artless. But now, at the last minute, he was determined that there should be as little imprecision as possible. He passed countless stores and restaurants on his way to the YMCA, where he helped himself to paper and ink and began to compose his application. For an hour he worked on this document. Then suddenly... Owing to the bad air in the place and to hunger, he became faint. He seemed to be swimming away from himself with great strokes and hurriedly left the building. In the Civic Center Park, across from the public library building, he drank almost a quart of water and felt himself refreshed. An old man was standing in the center of the brick boulevard surrounded by seagulls, pigeons, and robins. He was taking handfuls of breadcrumbs from a larger paper sack and tossing them to the birds with a gallant gesture. Dimly, he felt impelled to ask the old man for a portion of the crumbs, but would not allow the thought even nearly to reach consciousness. He entered the public library and for an hour read Proust. Then, feeling himself to be swimming away again, he rushed outdoors. He drank more water at the fountain in the park and began the long walk to his room. I'll go and sleep some more, he said. There is nothing else to do. He knew now that he was much too tired and weak to deceive himself about being all right, and yet his mind seemed somehow still lithe and alert. It as if it were a separate entity, persisted in articulating impertinent pleasantries about his very physical suffering. He reached his room early in the afternoon and immediately prepared coffee on the small gas range. There was no milk in the can. 
and the half pound of sugar he had purchased a week before was all gone. He drank a cup of the hot black fluid sitting on his bed and smiling. From the YMCA, he had stolen a dozen sheets of letter paper upon which he hoped to complete his document, but now the very notion of writing was unpleasant to him. There was nothing to say. He began to polish the penny he had found in the morning, and this absurd act somehow afforded him great enjoyment. No American coin can be made to shine so brilliantly as a penny. How many pennies would he need to go on living? Wasn't there something more he might sell? He looked about the bare room. No. His watch was gone, also his books. All those fine books, nine of them, for eighty-five cents. He felt ill and ashamed for having parted with his books. His best suit he had sold for two dollars, but that was all right. He didn't mind at all about the clothes. But the books? That was different. It made him very angry to think that there was no respect for men who wrote. He placed the shiny penny on the table, looking upon it with the delight of a miser. How prettily it smiles, he said. Without reading them, he looked at the words, E pluribus unum, one cent United States of America. And turning the penny over, he saw Lincoln, and the words, In God we trust, liberty, 1923. How beautiful it is, he said. He became drowsy, and felt a ghastly illness coming over his blood, a feeling of nausea and disintegration. Bewildered, he stood beside his bed, thinking there is nothing to do but sleep. Already he felt himself making great strides through the fluid of the earth, swimming away to the beginning. He fell face down upon the bed, saying, I ought first at least to give the coin to some child. A child could buy any number of things with a penny. Then swiftly, neatly, with the grace of the young man on the trapeze, he was gone from his body. For an eternal moment he was all things at once. The bird, the fish, the rodent reptile, and man, an ocean of print undulated endlessly and darkly before him. The city burned, the herded crowd rioted, the earth circled away, and knowing that he did so, he turned his lost face to the empty sky and became dreamless, unalive, perfect. That was Fresno Poet Laureate Marisol Baca reading William Soroyan's The Daring Young Man on the Flying Trapeze. I was struck by, when I read Daring Young Man, just getting through the first paragraph, I was like, is this even the same writer? 
<laughs> it's yeah. so different in style than everything else we've done so far. It's it's startling. It is startling. They are so different. The daring young man on the flying trapeze reads when you when you're reading into it, you're reading it like a poem. I mean that list that's happening, but also this kind of even just part one, you know, sleep and then wakefulness. And it's such a different reading in general. It's not like a lot of the pieces that I've read of, of Soroyan's, it doesn't feel like those pieces either. My first thought in reading the first paragraph of Daring Young Man is, this is poetry. Right. And he does that thing um, in chapter two, Wakefulness, where it says, it is only in sleep that we may know we live right at the very beginning. And then it goes into yeah. an internal dialogue. And that's in italics. Is that a normal for prose writing to use italics because we use it a lot in poetry right it, so. it, it is but back then it was um very experimental and this is what i think uh, freed up the beats and kerouac and um and rex roth and all these guys they they they, they, they saw him as uh, getting at something that no one had before that's interesting and then then that other line i was reading <laughs> you know, just the musicality of the line and just the use of like assonance and consonants and so much of it reads like, like a poem. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mark, having heard your story about ubiquitous and then to, to read the Soroyan story and see unostentatiously in there. <laughs> I mean, it's like, this, that's not the same William Soroyan that coached Mark Arax on whether to use ubiquitous or not. So, yeah. Well, right. He's a younger man in love with language. So. But just think of it. A, a kid from Fresno, an Armenian immigrant who got through the sixth grade. And he's writing to one of the, you know, these, these big East Coast publishers. Well, he's going he's gonna to show some stuff a little bit, even if it's kind of false, you know? Yeah. That's it for this episode of The Time of Our Life. Mark Arax, thank you very much. Thank you, David. Thank you, Marisol. Marisol, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me be a part of this. This is wonderful. This has been The Time of Our Life. In case you're wondering about our theme music, it was composed by Fresno native Ross Bagdasarian and his first cousin and lifelong friend, William Soroyan. The melody is based on an Armenian folk song. Special thank you to Fresno Poet Laureate Barisol Baca for reading and sharing her insight. Thanks to Mark Arex for his collaboration in this series. Thanks also to Alice Daniel and the entire Valley Public Radio News team. And a special thank you to Mimi Coulter and Stanford Libraries for allowing us permission to broadcast these stories. For Valley Public Radio, I'm David Alves.